When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Slate Audiobook Club is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com slash slate. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club from Monday, February 28th. I'm Hannah Rosen, editor of Double X. I am here in the Washington, D.C. studio with the lovely Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hannah. And we are joined in New Haven today by Emily Bazelon, also editor of Double X and a legal writer for Slate. Hi, Emily. Hello. Today, we are going to discuss Room, a novel by Emma Donahue, which is about a mother and son who are trapped inside a small room after she was kidnapped and the son was born in the room, and it's all fairly gruesome and also wonderful. But before we get into that, I want to hear something from Emily about our book clubs. Excellent. So here's some information about our upcoming book clubs. The votes are in for our March selection. It was very close. The winner was Swamplandia the debut novel by Karen Russell. And so we're going to talk about Swamplandia with special guest star John Dickerson on Monday, March 28th. That's the plan for March. And now for April, we would like your help. We're looking for a good nonfiction title that you're dying to read and discuss. So please send your suggestions to podcasts with an S on the end at Slate.com, and then you'll be able to vote for the final April selection during the week of March 14th to 18th, and that will be at our regular book club page, which is Slate.com slash book club. And so just again to get that page, it's Slate.com slash book club, and that's to vote for the April selection for our book club during the week of March 14th to 18th. Excellent. Yeah. So let's start talking about Room. I want to begin by talking about my initial reactions. This is a wonderful book. It was on the bestseller list. Many people loved it, but it took me a very long time. That was time. not your initial reaction. <laughs> no, wonderful. it took me a long time to – I just want to say that before my reaction so people don't think I didn't like it. It took me a really long time to crack it open. I Wait, read... we have to pause here. In fact, it took Margaret and me like hounding you and prodding exactly. you for months oh, it's to true. get you to open this book. And yeah. <laughs> Why is this? Resistance. You started the book and you didn't want to keep going, which I found really surprising. Well, let's say why. Because it is told in the voice of Jack, who's a five-year-old boy, who was born essentially in a prison where his mother had been kidnapped and they're in this small room. Room is the place where he grew up. And the voice initially is, I found, cloying. And there was the hovering presence of old Nick, who's the person who kidnapped the mother. And the combination to me spelled bad horror movie. I read the first few pages and I, I was so uncomfortable with the 
the combination of Jack's innocence and the, you know, ghostly figure or the gruesome figure of Nick that I couldn't go any further. See, I if someone just described the book to me, I would completely see what you mean. I would think of, you know, Flowers in the Attic, that horrible um, book oh, from my God. high school years, you know, that everybody read about the incestuous brother and sister who are trapped in the attic. And yes, the, the idea of a child narrator who's five, so a, a really young child narrator, filtering everything you see in the book and the dangers of it turning into a really ridiculously precocious voice, which you get sometimes with child narrators or cloying. However, from page one, I was actually completely pulled in and persuaded and found him to be actually the ideal window onto this horrible situation precisely because he doesn't realize it's a horrible situation. Yes. And in fact, that's what makes the book wonderful. And I wonder if when people recommend the book, which many people have, they start by saying, OK, I know this is a book about you know, some <laughs> they, horrible I kidnapping. I think they do. That was how I started reading it was Anne Hulbert saying that to me. I know you're going to resist this, but... Anne Holbert, who is Slate's literary editor, but you should read it. And when I've been trying to recruit people to read it, I find people start backing away from me. You also did like it very much. Am I right, Emily? I really like this book. I will say that I only survived the reading of this book, which is the kind of book that really I react to really strongly and have kind of, you know, bad dreams about. I survived it because I skipped ahead and realized, as we are going to discuss, that Jack and his mother escape the room. So I knew I wasn't going to read a whole book about that. Right, and that allowed me to keep... 11 by 11-foot room. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the other thing was I read it really quickly. I started it on a flight. And so I read, you know... It was a book that I had to stay up late to finish over 48 hours because it really gripped me. I found it harrowing. So, okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's divide this discussion into two parts, which is before room and after room. As Emily has mm-hmm. <laughs> already let on, they're going to escape the room. And spoiler alert, it is absolutely necessary to talk about yes, both yes. what happens before and after the room. So we're just going to put that out early. So we start out with Jack's vision of what's in this world. And it's kind of amazing. A sentence that jumps out to me is the sentence, we have thousands of things to do every morning. This is an 11 by 11 foot room. And this is his view of the world. There's all kinds of routines that his mother has set up, watering the plant, doing exercise around the bed. This is literally his entire room. He sees the outside world, which he calls outside through the skylight. And he's utterly confused about what's real and what's not real. Well, he's not confused, actually, because the mother, Ma, who we only know her as Ma throughout the book, has actually made a decision to tell him that the outside Outside world as he sees on the TV, that's his only access to it, is not real, is all fantasy. So he watches Dora like other little kids his age. But, you know, of course, Dora is a fantasy anyway. But he also watches, you know, the news and nature shows and whatever else is on TV. But he's told, for example, that, you know, broccoli is real because they get broccoli. Their captor brings them groceries. But ice cream is not real. That's only on TV, which is unreal. And, you know, that there is no world beyond the room that they're in. And she's done this as a way of protecting him. I mean, it's sort of an interesting choice that she that she makes. And one that she makes up until his fifth birthday, which is when the book starts. And one of the questions hovering over this first section of the book is how long could this 
illusion possibly lasts. Yeah, and that's section 1.2. That's the second half of the first section is when you see the innocence start to erode partly because of his age and partly because that's the narrative thrust of the novel. And so it has to erode for her to become desperate. But let's just stay in the innocence moment for a minute. Emily, did you think she did a successful job of building this world and convincing you of this boy's voice and his understanding of reality and the vision that he built of his mother and of what went on in this room? I really did go for really all of it. And I think that it unfolds slowly. And then the other thing that was very compelling to me is that you see the mother through this child's eyes. And it's not simply that she's a good mother. It's that she is his whole world. But there's something very moving about that. It, you know, in, in this world, the most of the world where we worry about, you know, overprotective, cloying parents, it's like you're having a conversation about that that is completely removed from all the usual considerations because she, in fact, does play that role. And so I was just sort of in awe of her parenting through this first part. Of yeah. The I mean, there's a great moment where she's trying to describe who old Nick is. Old Nick is the person who kidnapped her. And the one thing she has done is fear fiercely protect her son to the point that she does not let old Nick see him. She puts Jack in another corner of the room whenever old Nick comes to visit and essentially have sex with her, which is described through Jack's eyes. And Jack has the sense that old Nick is God, almost like an Old Mm -hmm. Testament God, that he, you know, makes the food. He brings all these things from the imaginary outside world to their door. He keeps them alive, but he's also punitive. Yeah, he's like an Old Testament God. And that's an amazing mothering moment where she says he's just the bringer. She really has to bring him down in a way which is going to make sense to Jack. So she says, you know, he doesn't create that world. You know, They talk vaguely about baby Jesus and there's some religion in their life. He just brings it to us. So she reduces him to some kind of messenger so that Jack doesn't have a sense of his great powers. There's something else I want to say about Room. This is a TMI moment, which I already shared with Margaret, which is that I have a two-year-old and one of oh, his favorite God. things, which he wants to talk about all the time, is we took a shower together once and he got to bring all his cars into the shower, not the bath. So it's in a really, really enclosed space. And that is literally his favorite thing to do. I think one of the reasons this book is palatable is because Room, pre-innocence, is a place where actually all children would like to be, where their mother is there and the only thing she has to do is explain the world to them and play with them. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place, which he loses over time. And that's a lot of the narrative tension. Right. And Emma Donahue has said that she wouldn't have wanted to write this book unless it also had some sort of universal resonance, unless it was also about the experience that every child has of wanting his mother all to himself. And then eventually of both usually his mother first or parent first and then and then the child realizing that in fact there is a wider world in which we must all live and in which we must to which we must aspire to live in um, successfully and so the idea of the room as this kind of womb-like space or as childhood you know in the enclosed safe way that we experience childhood that actually is his experience of it even though it's not our experience of it as the reader because we realize that this is an un you know, this is a, ca- a captive situation. That's w- this woman has been kidnapped, and that's why she's in this room. But for him, it's almost like an idealized childhood. Yeah, and in fact, I think that's the most successful thing about this novel is to take a situation which is extremely unusual and creepy and give it so many universal themes. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll discuss those later because they come out pretty starkly when they escape from the room and the whole situation reverses itself. But let's move on to the beginning 
beginning of The Loss of Innocence. The second chapter is called Unlying, which is an interesting title. It's when, you know, it suggests that this world that she's created is a lie, which maybe it is and maybe it isn't, although we recognize it as good parenting. But what happens, Emily? What do you see happening to Ma, for example? And, you know, what's going on with her and how does her desperation build? Well, the illusion of this perfectly enclosed world starts to crack, and it cracks immediately because at the end of the first section, there's been this moment where um, a toy Jeep has fallen off the shelf in the middle of the night. It's kind of complicated, but Jack is locked away in this wardrobe in the corner, and old Nick is there, and Jack pushes the remote control, and this Jeep falls on Nick's head, and he understandably thinks that the mother is trying to hurt him or kill him and completely freaks out. And so there's this terrifying moment where she has to talk him down. And so in the beginning of the second chapter, Jack, is his voice, he sees that the skin on her neck looks different. And he says to himself, actually, that's not dirt, I don't think. And so you just are set up for this whole transition that's going to gradually happen in this chapter where Jack is getting too old to really be able to be completely um, shielded from reality. And then the other subtext here is that Nick tells the mother that he's lost his job. And so she becomes, in this veiled way, terrified that he's lost his money and that, you know, if his house was foreclosed on, he might kill them because he obviously can't ever let anyone know that he has held them in this prison for so long. There's a really spooky aspect to this unlying. And yet it's also... A relief, I think, as a reader, it's both scary to see Jack exposed to the reality because you just don't know how he's going to handle it and then also a tremendous relief. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things that happen in this chapter to preview what's coming. For one thing, she starts to tell Jack. That's a very haunting moment when she tells him how she got into room because he asks her, why don't you like it here? And you realize all this time that the sort of discipline and tension that she's been under in order to create a sense of joy and normalcy in this room, she hasn't even let on yet that she doesn't like it there, which is kind of amazing. And then she tells him the story. And we, and again, this is something we all recognize as parents. There's an age in which you think when your children are very small that you're going to present yourself in a certain way to your children, then there's an age when you start to reveal a little bit more about yourself. Now, maybe five is a little young. She's in a desperate situation, but she tells him I was 19 and he stole me. And then Jack asks, what color was the truck? Right. And right. She, which know, is so perfect. Yes. Which is really quite perfect. And she tells him, I really need you to focus on the really important, important details. Right. 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 And of course, she doesn't expect him to understand, but, but you feel the kind of desperation building and it works simultaneously for their very strange situation. And it, it contains a lot of universal themes about mothering, which I thought was really clever. Right. And yet it's interesting to think about her psychology and what has sustained her. I mean, this is a situation where there are two people sharing a captivity where one knows that she is a captive and the other one does not. And of course, she has sustained this illusion, as we've been saying, to protect him. But in some ways, it probably helps her too, right? Because she's able to have, you know, a world reflected back to her of some kind of optimism and joy. If you were trapped with another adult who was equally despairing, right. it would be probably a more miserable situation, right? I mean, it's not only that he gives her a reason to live because she's taking care of him and she's his mother, but also that he gives her, you know, a glimpse of another way of being and feeling that she no longer can have herself. Okay, before we finish the discussion, Emily has an announcement. 
This episode of the Slate Audiobook Club is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create and manage a high-quality website or blog. Create a website that's uniquely you to display your photos from Flickr, a blog you've been thinking about starting, or the tweets and RSS feeds you like most. All in the design and colors of your choice. Whatever you want to communicate, you can say it easily and with style. With Squarespace, they even have an iPhone app, which makes it easy to update your site on the go. Try it out today for free by visiting squarespace.com slash slate and sign up for the free trial. Then choose a design template to get started. No credit card needed. Just give it a try to build your website. That's squarespace.com slash slate. Thanks to Squarespace for your support. All right, let's go back into the dramatic moment of the book, which is when Brave Prince Jack or Jack, as Ma calls him, in order to convince him to enact this amazing escape, which they practice over and over and over again. And the idea she has is quite brilliant, not plausible, but old Nick is, you know, kind of kooky crazy. And so maybe he doesn't uh, he doesn't realize that this couldn't have happened. She pretends that Jack is sick and that old Nick didn't help him. And then he died and that he has to smuggle Jack out. And she teaches Jack that he has to unroll himself, play dead, unroll himself from the rug in the back of the truck only when the rug is at a stop sign and then escape and talk to the first person he sees. So in fact, he does do this. And it's an amazing chapter where he gets into the truck, enacts the whole escape and meet somebody on the street who's just a man walking the dog who's suspicious because Jack has all sorts of cuts on him and old Nick behaves in a suspicious way. And the man calls the police and there's an amazing conversation between police and Jack. And then uh, and then the police manage to find the shed and the whole thing unravels. And then we are in part two of the novel, which is radically different from part one, has a lot more characters who are not Dora the Explorer and Dylan the Digger, but actual real people. And Ma and Jack have to come to terms with the life they had. And the fact that this is going to be difficult is previewed to us by the fact that Jack, the last thing he says is, I want to go back to bed. He basically wants to go back to room. He thinks this was some great game that he was playing with his ma. He did it successfully. He rescued his ma. He did all that he was supposed to. And he says, I want to go back to bed now because that's the only thing he's ever known. He says, I've seen the world and I'm tired now. Right. And she says, oh, Jack, we're never going back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then they're in the psychiatric facility. And Margaret, do you want to say a little bit about what happens there and what the scene are, or at least who was your most interesting character there? You know, basically now we're seeing the world coming in and trying with varying degrees of humanity and compassion and success to um, help Ma and Jack re-enter the world and and kind of repair themselves. And so we meet um, a doctor and a nurse who are, I would say, pretty sympathetic figures. Yes. Although, you know, throughout there is a sense that Ma and Jack have had an experience that is so beyond what anyone in their and their new world has had, that it's very hard to bridge that gap, even with people who care a great deal and try with a, with a lot of sensitivity. As I say, there are varying degrees of success in how people are able to kind of reach out to them. But I think, you know, she also has talked about how she, Emma Donahue, that is, wanted to make this narrative uh, have something in common with sort of 18th century travel narrative. She actually mentions Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. Because it's it really is about people who have lived a, a totally different life, have their own language, their own way of doing things, their own customs in a sense, 
this is Jack and Ma here, and now have to adjust to this outside world. Yeah, and there's actually a creepy preview in the chapter before where old Nick says, you know, I'm protecting you from the world out there. And it's a very disgusting way. Like, you know, they're just perverts out there in the world in the way that he would think. And then they get out in the world. And in fact, it's not that far off from how Jack at least experiences the world. They live in a psychiatric ward. There are crazy people there. Everything is bizarre to him. Climbing the steps is very hard for him because he has no depth perception. Sunlight. Sunlight He's is never totally worn foreign. shoes. And he can't use pronouns normally. There has been no real he and she in his life. And so everything is you and I. I thought that was so interesting mm-hmm. how she um, talked about that. And so there's a lot that Emma Donahue has to do in this second part. She has to recalibrate the relationship between Jack and Ma. She has to recalibrate the relationship between Ma and the rest of her family because Ma suddenly feels judged both in how she parented and the decisions she's made. And Emma Donahue introduces a whole bunch of characters. This is the first part where the novel failed me is in the introduction of Morris the lawyer who's the sleazy guy who's trying to get her to sell her story. And I felt that this was one point where Emma Donahue was too heavy-handed. He, you know, Morris says to her, you know, you can get on TV as someone selling simple living. It's very zeitgeist Right, okay, that one moment, that one line (laughs) seems like an extreme case of social satire in a book that is otherwise so attentive to sort of psychological realism and nuance that you get a little frustrated. However, the idea that a sort of crass, you know, media would descend on somebody like this, I'm sure that people who have undergone experiences like this, including that horrible, you know, Austrian case, which she says she was partly, Donahue says she was partly inspired by of the father who kept his daughter captive for years and had many children by over 24 years. Uh, You know, I'm sure these people were descended upon too by, you know, all kinds of lawyers, media, whoever. And her encounter with the media, actually, her her sort of interview on television, you know, it's a little broad, but not that broad. I mean, you can no. imagine some of these questions being asked and that level of insensitivity being shown to somebody. And you sort of root for her and her kind of refusal to go along with the narrative that's being imposed on her. Really? Emily, did you think that? Did you think the reporter was, you know, the Stockholm Syndrome obnoxious girl reporter was realistic? Yes, I did. You did. Sadly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I also, I want to talk about the whole theme of nursing here because this is the way in which I think Donahue both makes us see Ma from the point of view of the outside world. You mean and breastfeeding also, nursing? Yes, or, yes, yes. Not the professional so, nursing. Mm-hmm. No, no, sorry. <laughs> so Ma's breastfeeding Jack. And it's this, for Jack, this source of enormous comfort. He talks about it as having some. That's his term for breastfeeding. And I think that's supposed to be intentionally uncomfortable for us to hear. Like, I'm going to yes. have some from the left and it's really creamy. I mean, you're supposed to read that and feel a little grossed It's out. creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's five. So, yes, it's hard for us to hear. And then when they're in the police station on the night of their dramatic escape, he is looking to breastfeed as a source of comfort. And it clearly spooks the cops whom, and doctor who Ma is talking to. And she gets very defensive and says, you know, why are you judging me for this? And this also comes up in this television interview. And I thought she had this kind of amazing line where she says, really, in this whole story, this is the detail that freaks everyone out? Right, right exactly. And similarly, the, the reporter at one point asks, now, you made a decision to deceive uh, right. your child and basically tell him that there was no, you know, that the real world that he saw on TV was not real. And And, um, hmm, you know, do you have any second thoughts about that? And she says, what was I supposed to tell him that there's a whole wonderful world out there and he can't have any of it? I mean, that's 
Right. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she is. But back to the breastfeeding, it's interesting because I, you know, did not find it that shocking. It seemed to me like an understandable development given their circumstances, you know, but clearly people are shocked by it, including readers. I mean, I saw her read at um, Politics and Prose and it came up and uh, our local bookstore. She said that, you know, people ask about that and are clearly bothered by it. Um, well, that's one by thing. The breastfeeding by the breastfeeding? By the breastfeeding. By the breastfeeding. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's meant to be there as a double-edged sword because – it does make you uncomfortable and you have to kind of wrestle with it. And then you have to decide whether you're going to see it from her point of view or not. Well, and it hints at what the difficulties will be if they were to stay in captivity as Jack gets older and, you know, reaches puberty and so on. So it, in the sense that it plants the seed of, oh, God, what horrible things could develop if if he were to stay there and their relationship become sort of more sexualized. You know, I think it's that that's disturbing. The fact that she, you know, continues to breastfeed him for nutritional and comfort reasons. I mean, I I actually don't find that that disturbing. Well, but it's more that it's a perfect symbol. I mean, as a narrative device, it's really good because what Emma Donahue is hitting on is these, you know, these words that the culture picks up on Stockholm syndrome, you know, breast that, that she knows that everybody will focus on this one, yes. mm-hmm. the sense of irrelevant detail, like in the same way that Jack focused on the brown truck, the media is going to and the culture is going to focus on one or two things. They give names to him like the bonsai tree, you know, or the boy, you know, they come up with terms that have no relation to what we know to be true about Jack, that he's developmentally retarded and, you know, that she has Stockholm syndrome. It's like there's, you know, it's like pick a few phrases that mm-hmm. would be appropriate to the situation. And she realizes that that's how the culture responds to such extreme situations. And so and then they all fall apart around it. I have to say that, you know, the breastfeeding is also about her ability to separate from Jack quite literally. This is a way in which the universal themes come back in the second half of the novel. Some of them are about freedom in the Shawshank Redemption sense. What's it like to be routinized and in captivity? And once that's taken away from you, how do you, in what ways do you fall apart? And in the mothering, you see her slowly come into herself, remind herself who she is in the way that many mothers do, usually after their children are infants. And there's this really poignant moment when she's listening to music. She's listening to an old song that she used to listen to and thinking about contacting some of her friends who she used to be friends with. You know, she's like clearly on Facebook or something seeing pictures of totally. friends growing right. up saying status, divorced or whatever. And and it's like comes flooding into her mm-hmm. and her behavior who after that, who she was and, and that she is not just Ma. And that's really poignant. She starts to behave in strange and inappropriate ways. Like when she talks to him, to me, the most moving part was that baby monkey story when oh, she keeps telling mm-hmm. Jack that story of the experiment when the baby It's not taken a story. Away. It's true. No, it's right. true. It's that like Harry Harlow and the monkeys <laughs> yes, right. were raised with the uh, with no mother love and just metal, metal monkey figures to hug. But of course, she shouldn't be telling him right. about this right. experiment. And he doesn't she, know what disturbing. to make of it. He doesn't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of the fact that she's saying it. It's it's so strange and it's I think I think there's a lot of things going on there. I mean she needs to kind of push him away in weird ways and Right. And this tension is introduced into the relationship because he actually is nostalgic for room and she is not. At one point the doctors tell him that he is a person and he says, Well maybe I'm a different kind of person that's called me and Ma, not just Jack. Right. And obviously she needs to escape that identity. And you know as the reader, he's going to have to stop breastfeeding. That's gonna to have right. to be part of the trade off for being in the real world. And in fact I found that scene when he did stop to be totally touching. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. did you think of her relationship with her parents? Because she is also in this post 
room stage, she's she's reunited with her, her parents. So let's just describe who her parents are. She's got her mother. What is her mother's name? I've just forgotten her mother's name. I don't know if we name. ever find grandma. out. Grandma. Grandma. Yeah, they right. just call her grandma. Her grandma has since remarried or has a divorced, and divorced her father. I don't know if she's remarried or she's with this right. other guy. She's His remarried. Name, she's remarried. His name is Leo and he's called Steppa in the novel. And the grandma is, she has a slightly tense relationship with her own mother that she has to re-enter in this. And her I think grandma is kind of person who can't has difficulty entering a child's world. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's mm-hmm. what we could say yes. about grandma. She she can't really speak his language. You know, she says things like, "Well, we turned her room into a fitness room," like things you wouldn't really. She can't leave her reality and enter a child's mm-hmm. reality in the mm-hmm. way say, and and it's made more difficult by the fact that when people look at. Ma, we don't know her name, do we? But when people look at her, they have all sorts of thoughts. Like you had sex with old Nick and that produced this child. They, she makes her own parents really, really uncomfortable. Right. Whereas Steppa, he's kind of an outsider and has no baggage or history or, you know, many years of waiting for his child to return. So he is really the rare person who's able to interact with Jack in a good, healthy, normal way. Right. right. He is a great character because Ma judges her own mother for marrying him when she first sees him. First of all, she's resisting. Her parents got divorced while she was in captivity. It seems because they dealt with it in a different way. Her father eventually decided to have a funeral for her. And then he moved to Australia. I mean, it's really dramatic and yet seemed totally t- realistic to me. This does happen to people when their children have terrible tragedies. And the father is disgusted by Jack, really. Right. Yes. right because he sees him intense. as the product of the person of who the raped person his who daughter, raped, daughter right. repeatedly raped his daughter and can't get past that. And the grandmother, I think, probably has some of that feeling, too, but more sympathetically, if not entirely successfully, struggles with that. Right. Right. And one of the beautiful things about the book, I think, is Ma's fierce defense of Jack and just this feeling that he is only her son. This isn't true, of course, biologically, but it's completely true emotionally to her. And she just, you know, hangs on to that that interpretation of these circumstances in a way that felt really true to me, to her parenting. Right. And an interesting sort of side note to that is that, you know, she is adopted. That's mm-hmm. that's a point that's not a huge deal is made of, but some some point is made that Ma herself was adopted as a baby. And somebody asked Emma Donahue at this reading that I saw, what, you know, why did you choose to make her adopted? And she said, well, you know, for one thing, it was because I wanted to show that there are different kinds of families. But also I wanted to make Ma a character for whom the biological connection to a parent would not be paramount so that that would make it easier for her in a way to kind of write Nick out of the picture. Out of the picture. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I read it as, I mean, there's so many themes that come up mm-hmm. in the second half, but as a light commentary on this notion of who's your natural child and who's your mother, because in fact, it is true that she's <laughs> Nick's, I mean, biologically old Nick is the father, but it right. has absolutely no bearing on who he is or how he was raised. And, you know, even though nobody sees it that way, that's effectively the truth that she's his, you know, son, the moon, the stars, his only parent and always has been. And so it's... Didn't you have a moment of lingering wondering what he looked like and which of them he looked like he's never described in those terms and i just it nick was like isn't corn um or the, the jack. Or jack we well, don't you know, know who jack resembles actually physically. there is a moment in the there beginning i had forgotten this but i was just looking through it and where she says to him uh ma says to him you're the dead spit of me and she uh, says you have my you know chin my pointy chin my brown eyes my brown hair and you don't really know of course whether that's her 
will believe her reading of that or whether that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the you don't idea get that any, that's true. Right. But you don't get any corroboration of that from the outside. No, no right. uh, figure, you know, parental figure. Anybody says, oh, you look just like your mom. You know, so. Right. Well, we haven't talked about Ma's breakdown, which is, I think, the last big thing that happens at the end that we need to talk about. So after this interview, this obnoxious interview with a TV reporter in which she feels completely judged uh, for her parenting, for the decisions that she's made, and she feels, I think, confused by her identity, she overdoses and uh, I guess attempts suicide. I mean, yes, she Mm -hmm. attempts suicide. Can we say that fairly? Yeah. Again, I think it's also a forced separation from Jack. She can't be with him during this period. It is a desperate, desperate measure she she takes in order to isolate herself and figure this out. I mean, I don't know how the psychological mechanism works, but Jack has to then spend time with grandma and step by. Were you surprised by that? Because in some ways, you know, she has been portrayed as a really heroic character. I mean, she does, there are these indications, of course, that she is deeply depressed as well. And especially, you know, moments in the room and afterwards where Jack refers to it as uh, her her turning off, right? Is that or, or is that gone. no being gone? Turning off is when she goes to sleep. Being gone, where she's kind of unreachable to him, and and you know, deeply deeply depressed. There is some indication, I guess. But did it take either of you aback? Well, I think there are things that you are saved from doing by narrating your novel through a child, and mm-hmm. one of them is the incredible psychological complexity of the adults. I mean, we are seeing this only through the filter of Jack, so we actually don't know that much about Ma. We know the moments when she chooses to reveal certain things, and her mother later says, oh, you used to babysit for all the kids for free, you mm-hmm. used to love kids, and that a little bit explained to us why she was such a good mother in captivity or knew the first thing about taking care of kids. But what she's like, I couldn't say say that we knew what kind of person mm-hmm, she was. Mm-hmm. We sort of we know what kind of mother she is. And, so and we she's also mom. know she's had this experience that, you know, produces PTSD. I kept thinking about Primo Levi, who killed himself, you know, years after being mm-hmm. freed from the concentration camps and just the sense that you've had something happen to you that makes you lose control over your own best instincts, at least in this particular moment. Um, And then I think, Hannah, you're right, that she there's no way she can articulate to herself that she needs to separate from Jack because her whole identity for five years has been caught up in being his mother and protecting him. But she desperately needs that space, and somehow this is how she gets it. And there is this poignancy then that is, again, you know, universalizable of the kind of different senses of what an adult and a child need. Their different senses of time, their different senses of, you know, identity that have been so merged for them and now are are not. And, you know, she has to find a way of loving him and caring for him in a world where her identity is not going to be completely submerged. In and, and also, frankly, in a world in which she needs him a lot less, she's angry at him at the in the last half of the novel because he misses room. Right. And that's just disgusting to her. You know, it's not her fault. In survival mode, she created what she had to, but mm-hmm. she also created ex- extreme sources of comfort for him that now it disgusts her. But right. she he did her job too well. It. Exactly. And, and, and Right. Like he wants to keep rugs. I mean, he wants to keep rug. He wants to he keep wants her to go old back tooth. There. He wants to go back there and sleep in his bed. And she's disgusted. Like she's horrified that he would even say such things, even though it's completely understandable why he would. Right. And this the, it's the impatience of the parent, right? The impatience for the child to grow up, which sometimes is good because it goads kids into being more independent. And yet it's also really painful. And so 
because we experience it through Jack's eyes, we're very aware of the pain that it's causing. And there are funny moments when Jack says, oh, I don't like it outside. This is a place where adults just talk to other adults and they don't even (laughs) want to play with the kids. They don't even seem to like the kids. And when, you know, the small people are crying, they don't even pay attention to (laughs) the kids. Social commentary, right, Right, about the moms on their iPhones. Where you want to say something to to your ma and you have to say, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And when your ma finally turns and you get to, you know, you get to tell you forgotten what you were going to say. Right, exactly. Right. I know my daughter feels that way. Yeah, surely all kids feel that way. Right. Okay, well, let's move to the end. Were you guys convinced they go and visit the room essentially at the end and it's his just as he said goodbye to the left breast and the right breast, he goes in a poignant final scene. Finally, he convinces his mother to go back to room, which makes her throw up uh, and say goodbye to things. Did you guys find that convincing? Was that too happy an ending oh, for God, you? Oh, God, I was completely, you know, in tears for that entire scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, so I can't, I cannot judge it Beyond that, no, I I thought I actually found that it again stood for me for the kind of thing parents have to do sometimes, you know, to meet the needs of their children. I mean, let's say it was a horrible divorce or something, and and the child still wanted to have a relationship with the father, and so you or mother, and so the other parent, you know, swallows everything, you know, their own instincts and allows that to happen. So all that kind of feeling, which I think you know, every parent does. To some degree, this is obviously an extreme version of it. And, you know, that he needs that to make his life whole, that otherwise, you know, there's going to be this enormous terror in the middle of his life that will be unfixable. So the the fact that she can do that for him makes you feel hope for their relationship and not a false hope, I don't think. I mean, uh, you know, it's tentative. I mean, she's tried to commit suicide. It's not It's not a completely, you know, rosy ending, but it gives you some plausible hope. I also thought there were two really beautiful things about this ending. One was that this book uses children's literature very skillfully. The runaway bunny comes up early in the story, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, like this very powerful parable about the mother-child relationship. Various fairy tales about traps. Alice in Wonderland, right, is like in some ways the perfect metaphor for for their situation. And then at the end, as Jack is saying goodbye to all the objects in the room, one can't help but hear the reflection of the book Goodnight Moon. Mm -hmm. And for Mm -hmm. me, that gave this – it took the intense creepiness of the scene and just like rubbed a little bit of the edge off of it so that I could bear to keep reading. It Mm -hmm. really – I thought Mm -hmm. it really worked well. Yeah, that's a good point. And one of the amazing things about the last scene is the way in which Jack's you know, loss of innocence is portrayed. He, the room seems completely tiny to him. It's not what he remembered the room to be. It's exactly the experience I had when I got back from college and yes. went to my parents' house. And actually, it was the opposite. I was like, wow, everything in here is so small. Like, how did I not know? But, you know, the way in which that it's been rescaled for him is a sign that, in fact, something successful has happened, that she's not just been forcing this on him, that the, that the, the knowingness which has to come has come in a natural way and that he is able to successfully say goodbye room. And I, too, cried when I read this the second time, which was mm-hmm. yesterday. It's an incredibly it's an incredibly moving and true scene. So I think a completely successful and happy ending. It's a strangely optimistic novel, even though it's about something so gruesome and horrible. Mm-hmm. I have 
a last question for you guys. I wonder what you think about this. I kept thinking about the book The Lovely Bones when I was reading the story, mm-hmm. which I think is an obvious parallel. But I actually really ended up hating The Lovely Bones. The Lovely Bones is about the rape of a child and the murder of a child, and it's very hard to read. But for me, the first half or two-thirds of the book worked very well. It had the same power and ability to transcend the kind of lurid and tabloid aspect of the story and to create real literature. But then that book completely fell apart to me, mostly because I thought that the author really turned on the mother character and made her just a caricature and I got really angry about that. But this book seems to me only becomes more successful as it continues on. And I liked reading the second two-thirds of it after the escape more than I did the beginning and really came away just feeling like it was a real work of literature. And I was wondering what you both thought about it. I completely comparison. agree because I think this book is written backwards in a way. It's not about a haunting and ridding yourself of a haunting. It's, you know, you're haunted in the last half in your escape. And I think the book is so perfectly balanced and that's what makes it interesting that the things you think are going to be horrible are not what turn out to be horrible. So it's not, you know, it's not cathartic in the usual pattern of cathartic. There's a horrible mm-hmm. thing. I need to solve that mystery. You solve the mystery and it all goes wrong. And I think that's a lot of what makes it more interesting than your usual horror story in which you're trying to mend some great horror. Right. And I mean, you go back to your point at the beginning, Han, about the resistance when you just described this book and the sort of prodigious feat she accomplishes of taking what is essentially a sort of true crime genre set of facts or material and turning it into a piece of literature. And it's partly the voice of Jack, which is kind of unforgettable and sustained so beautifully throughout and throughout the changes that he goes through in his situation. All right. I don't even have to ask if you would recommend this. It's it's more like with what words would you recommend this? How exactly how do you would you frame like Hana right. to keep going? How do you frame your recommendation and how many times do you prod people who resist it? Anyway, it was great talking to both of you. Yes. And I hope all you listeners will join us for our next book club, which is about Swamplandia. That's our March book. And also, we'd love for you to recommend an April nonfiction book and then vote when we have our three choices up. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.